Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you're tuning in today. Let's see by show of virtual hands, and you can do this by Twitter or any other means you want to to communicate with me. Who is bleary-eyed from staying up too late watching Shark Week on Discovery Channel this week? I know that I am. I am so addicted to it. Love watching Shark Week. And, you know, as I was watching, I began to think about some of the previous shows we've done on Go Green Radio about what's going on with our marine life and our oceans. And one of the things that I remember from our last show that we did on this was the idea that our oceans are getting more and more acidic. And part of the reason for that is that they are absorbing a lot of the CO2 that we're emitting into the atmosphere. And as a result, they're becoming more acidic. And that's not good for our marine life. And I've been thinking about that while I was watching Shark Week. And, you know, one of the biggest sources for CO2 emissions just happens to be our built environment, our buildings, all the energy that it takes to cool and to heat and to uh, keep those buildings comfortable for all of us who are inhabiting them. And today's guest is somebody who can talk to us about how we can reduce the carbon footprint and the overall environmental footprint of our built environment. David Bergman is our guest today, and he's an architect and an eco-designer who has a brand new book out that actually I found to be really, really a great read, even for a layman like myself who's not an architect. The book is called Sustainable Design, A Critical Guide. It's got some really cool pictures. It's got some great graphics and a very easy to understand way of talking about our built environment so that even if you're not an architect, not building a structure, even if you're remodeling your home, it can give you some great ideas about how to make your built environment more eco-friendly. So I'd like to give a big shout out, a big welcome to David. Welcome to Go Green Radio. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. And before we discuss the details of your book, I'd really like for you to give us a workable definition for what sustainable design is. Yeah, that, that, that's a great place to start <laughs> because there's a, a lot of terminology that floats out there and, and, and things mean different things to different people. You know, we've had originally green design and eco-design and then sustainable design has come along as the more au courant term. Um, and when I talk about sustainable design, I, I like to ask people, well, what is it we're trying to sustain? Uh, because most people think of green design and sustainability as saving the planet. 
And the reality is, you know, we, we don't need to save the planet. The planet's going to get along just fine without us. What we need to save is this version, this ecosystem of our planet that is so hospitable for us. <laughs> uh, and, and, and if we ruin that through a number of possibilities, uh, then it's simply not going to be as easy or even possible, perhaps, for humans to be sustained. So the answer comes down to we're trying to sustain ourselves uh, and what is it going to take to do that. And we broaden that out even further to talk about you know, what, what does it mean to sustain or is sustaining an adequate goal for humanity? You know, sustaining is, is not a very positive tone. It's just continuing to exist. And really we want to set up a planetary system, our own systems, that allow us to not just sustain ourselves, but indeed to flourish as a species, as individuals, as communities. And architecture and design has a huge role in, in both the sustaining and further the flourishing of humanity. I love that concept because you're right. Sustaining kind of sounds like treading water and flourishing, uh, you know, sounds like progress and we're moving forward. And I love the idea that we're able to consider progress without further damaging our ecosystem. Well, what is your view? You mentioned this in the book. You talk about it on your blog, ecooptimism.com your view on the ethical responsibility of architects to create sustainable projects. You know, that's, um, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, the study of architecture is very academic and, and somewhat creative. But when you talk about ethics and moral responsibilities, that gets into a whole new realm. Talk to us about what you think the ethical responsibility of architects should be in this regard. Sure, happy to. Um, it has to do with what our role in in all of this is, you know, we're providing the in, indoor environments and sometimes some of the outdoor environments for all of us to exist in, and that has a huge bearing on, on how we exist, on what happens to us. So, you know, aside from the, I guess, professional legal responsibilities of making buildings that just, you know, stand up and hopefully don't leak, um, we have an ethical responsibility to make sure the buildings are, further than that, are safe and good for us in all kinds of environmental senses. I, when, I, when I talk about this, I often refer to uh, the doctor's Hippocratic Oath, mm-hmm. um, and you may be familiar with it, but it begins, first, do no harm. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies equally well to architects and designers because it's our primary responsibility, whatever other professional legal responsibilities are, it's really our primary responsibility to not harm anyone who is occupying or using our stuff, the stuff we design. And, you know, aside from that, it's not good business anyway. If you, if you design uh, buildings that make people sick or worse, well, uh, you know, they're not going to be returning clients. You're not going to have more work for them. So it just makes sense from that business, even along with the ethical side. That's so interesting. I'm wondering how ubiquitous is this belief within the architectural community? Is it being taught to young architects, this, this above and beyond the technical aspects of their job, the ethical aspects? Is that something that's um, widespread or is that something that, that you alone are kind of putting out there? Well, you know, in, in most architectural schools for a long time, there's been a course called either professional practices or something like that. And it does talk about, um, it, to varying degrees in different kinds of schools, uh, how, what, what ethical responsibilities are and how we go about running businesses and that sort of thing. The issue, I think, 
is more about the, the separation or the perceived separation of sustainable design from the rest of design. And uh, this is something that hopefully I'll have time to go into you know, a little bit later in, in the show. Um, but too often, until recently, and this is breaking down, too often the sustainability courses and teachings are seen as something you do off on the side and is not necessarily integrated into a part of overall design and, and therefore becomes less important. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to stress, many of us in teaching now, is that sustainability is an integral part of, of what it is we do as designers. It's not some separate course you take and then put the book back on the shelf. Well, you know, I, we had a guest on not too long ago who is uh, good friends with a lot of, of architects, and he was visiting California, and he was driving, you know, up our freeways as, as uh, you know, he was moving from sort of the Central Valley uh, where we grow a lot of food and then into some of the more developed areas. And he was talking to his friend. He was he was going to an architectural conference, and he was going to be speaking. And he said, "My goodness, why have you guys built so much on top of farmland? <laughs> you know." And and I'm wondering, you know, how much say do architects have in even the siting of their projects, or is that something that we need to be talking to urban planners about? Uh, I think it's it's everyone. It's it's architects, it's urban planners, it's even you know, landscape architects, uh, it's developers, uh, perhaps at the core group that has to be informed about this, that has to be more aware. You know, it gets into issues of urban sprawl and smart growth uh, and, and you know, new urbanism that we're, de- we're determining that it really doesn't make sense for us to keep building outward all the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's this supposed American way of life in which we're supposed to have our, our individual houses with, with you know, two at least car garage and, and lawns surrounding them. And we've, we've been sort of literally led down a road to think that that's the way we want to live, and we've grown accustomed to it. And it's, it's often touted as one of our rights. But what a lot of people in planning and architecture and elsewhere are discovering is that there is a, a better way of life that we would prefer to call it American way of life, that has to do with living more in communities uh, where we are near other people, near our resources, near jobs, near schools, where we can do all this in a smaller area, you know, maybe even by foot, rather mm. than being so reliant on cars to get between homes and shopping centers that are you know, dozens of miles apart or spending hours each day commuting to work. Wouldn't it be right. such a wonderful American way of life, uh, in some senses an older American way of life? to be able to walk or bike to uh, most of the things you do during the day and not have to worry about mowing an acre of lawn you know, once, once a week, too. That was one of the banes of my childhood existences. <laughs> Me, too. Oh, my goodness. I remember those terrible long, hot days behind a push mower. It wasn't even mm-hmm. a riding mower. Yeah. No, it's true. And I think, you know, more and more people are beginning to consider this, although, you know, with our housing market the way that it is right now, I'm not sure um, with all this empty real estate waiting to be sold, um, you know, how quickly we could make a shift to what you're discussing. But let's say, you know, that we we get more and more people wanting to build the way that you suggest in your book, Sustainable Design, a Critical Guide. From a layman's perspective, how can the average person or a developer find an architect that knows how to create sustainable design? If our listeners are planning a project, whether it's residential or commercial, and they want to evaluate potential architects to find the 
best one with credibility and sustainable design, what types of questions should they be asking of these architects? Uh, well, it's a good question to ask questions of. And, um, you know, roughly speaking, I can say that I think there are three types of architects out there when we're looking at in terms of sustainability. There are ones who are really into it, and, and maybe that's the core of their practice. Uh, there are the ones who are at the other end of the uh, spectrum who really aren't into, aren't concerned about, or aren't knowledgeable about sustainable design. And then there are the ones who uh, either started out that way and added sustainability into their practice or learned it at that way with sustainability as integral to design. And one of the things a uh, client, you know, we have to ask is what kind of architect is this? And the reason you'd want to do that is dependent also what your house, what you want your house to look like, and you know what are, what are your priorities. If energy efficiency and indoor air quality are your highest priorities, then maybe yes, you do want to go with an architect of the first type I described, who's really really great at sustainability. But I think more often what we want to find is an architect who's a really damn good designer, mm-hmm. uh, and incorporate sustainability as part of, you know, that architect's design approach. Um, and, and there are typical questions you would ask for any type of architectural project as well. You know, what type of buildings does the architect do as a commercial residential? Uh, how do they approach design? Um, in environmentalism, one of the types of flexibility an architect or a designer has to have is the ability to adapt to different uh, locales and to not come up with the same solution uh, for everywhere. And, you know, that, that's a problem we've had in, in modern design, that you can see the same type of house with the same type of windows and the same type of lawn uh, in, you know, any of the, the far regions of our country, or perhaps mm-hmm. in the world. And that's just not a smart way to design. A good designer, a good eco-architect will know what makes sense in Phoenix versus in Bangor, Maine, or right. Atlanta. Sometimes um, I'm concerned that, you know, we have the U.S. Green Building Council lead a certification, and in so many ways, it's a great program. But sometimes I wonder if a monolithic, you know, national program like that takes enough account of things like locally manufactured materials for building mm-hmm. or local design and those types of things. And maybe we can talk about that um, after we take a commercial break. We'll be going to break here in just a second. But I'd like to discuss some of those local design issues and how um, people who are evaluating architects for you know, for designs and projects may be able to intelligently inquire into their credentials for that. Well, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. More Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be tuning in, our guest today is David Bergman. He's the author of a brand new book called Sustainable Design, A Critical Guide. You can find out more about his book and read his blog if you visit his website at www.ecooptimism.com. Don't you love the title of that blog? It's just so positive and so uplifting. I really like it. David, I'm so glad that you could join us. And before we went to commercial break, we were talking a little bit about um, – local issues and how if you're evaluating an architect to do a sustainable design, it's really helpful to find an architect who will take into account some of the uh, local maybe climate issues, uh, local sourcing and material site issues. Talk to us just a little bit more about uh, how to find a good architect and how lead standards from the U.S. Green Building Council kind of play into uh, those types of, of site-specific issues? Sure. Um, well, there's a couple of topics embedded in there. Um, one has to do with, as you started to say, acknowledging that we don't want to be building the same buildings, same approaches to environmental design uh, everywhere in the country or, of course, everywhere in the world. And one of the major revisions to lead in the past few years has been adding an area of additional points because lead is about accumulating point, points toward a rating, and there are a bunch of points that local uh, USGBC organizations can set aside that reflect, you know, different things. Uh, refer, might refer, reflect the emphasis on, you know, a water efficiency in the Southwest, for instance, or on, on insulation for severe weather in the Northeast. Uh, and that's an acknowledgement of the fact that we, you know, design is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, the other part of the question I think that you were getting at is often talked about as well, and that is the advantages of local sourcing of materials. Mm-hmm. And, you know, up to until a couple hundred years ago, all or almost all building materials were locally sourced because they had to be. You know, we, we didn't have the ability to ship them around the world or put them on freight trains. Um, and people learned to build with the materials that were near them and learned the properties of those materials. And that's how we have vernacular architectural styles in, in different regions. Um, that, that said, 
local sourcing is one of the criteria we should be looking at in green buildings, but it, it shouldn't, in my opinion, be an overwhelming one. And that's because of a few things. One is that we have a very globalized economy these days, obviously. Things are made all over the world and, and, and shipped from different places. Some of the things that we might want in a building for environmental reasons might not be made locally. And you know, a perfect example of that is our compact fluorescent bulbs and LEDs. They're almost all made in China. And yet they are what we would want to use uh, for energy-efficient lighting. So if we were to stick with things that were made just locally, our, our limit, we'd be much more limited and much less energy-efficient. And then there's also the question of what is local and how it's defined in terms of the carbon footprint of the transportation. Um, there's a lot of debate of this in, in the food world as well. Does it yes. make sense, and we can apply this to building materials, does it make sense to have something made locally and brought in on you know, lots of small, maybe old uh, gas-guzzling trucks versus having it made at a, a more of a distance but shipped really efficiently, say, on, on a freight train? So the, the local criteria is a, is a good one, but I think it should not be the only one, and it needs to be weighed against the other advantages and costs of other materials. That's a good point. Very interesting perspective. I'm glad that we went over that because you're right. There, uh, just because something's local doesn't necessarily mean that it is the most eco-friendly um, option. So great point. You know, for the past several years, I know that the U.S. Green Building Council and many others uh, in your field and, and in the developer field have talked about ways to reduce the carbon footprint of our built environment. And the emphasis was in order to help mitigate the human impact on climate change. And I'm wondering if you think that's still a primary focus of sustainable design, or do you see a pivot towards designs meant to help humans adapt to climate change? And and I'm wondering if there's any difference in how you would design a building to mitigate climate change as opposed to helping humans adapt to climate change. A great question again. Um, And and before I jump jump into that, I'd like to actually have a preface to that point, which is Kind of implicit in your question is the point that uh, sustainable design is almost entirely about re- reducing carbon footprint and increasing energy efficiency. And we'd have to not forget that there are a whole bunch of additional areas that comprise sustainable design, uh, like material sourcing, for instance, um, like you know, our indoor air quality, uh, water efficiency, um, durability. You know, all, all, these are all things that we need to be paying attention to and integrating into sustainability and then integrating into full design. Um, that said, uh, you know, climate change, climate disruption is certainly one of our leading, if not our leading concern in terms of the impacts of buildings on the environment. Um, when we talk about mitigating versus adapting, it, it gets into some interesting, almost philosophical questions. And uh, I have a little bit of a problem with the idea of promoting uh, adapting as opposed to mitigating, because what it is essentially doing is throwing in a towel and saying, we can't change, we can't stop climate disruption. There's nothing to do either because it's too late or we don't have the ability to do it. Um, so let's find ways to accommodate it. And the ways to accommodate it mostly are, are highly 
conjectural and perhaps highly dangerous. You know, not in the building realm. We're talking about things like seeding sulfur in the atmosphere. We don't really know what's going to happen with that. Um, in the adaptation of buildings, yeah, there are things we can do, you know, whether it's raising buildings above the sea level because the sea level's rising or bracing them for stronger storms. Uh, and those are probably good things. But I think it's critically important in terms of the environment and also in terms of our thinking of the environment that we concentrate on mitigation, that we concentrate on stopping it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it basically head the problem off before it occurs. It's just a smarter way to go until or unless uh, you know, it's too late. There is that possibility, so we do need to consider uh, ad- adaptation as well. But I, th- I think of you know, design, I think, is, is inherently uh, an optimistic profession. And, you know, when, when a designer starts tackling or an architect starts tackling a problem, they're thinking, well, what can I make of this? What can I do that, that is better than what's there? And I, with my blog, Eco-Optimism, thank you for mentioning it, what I'm trying to do is extend that approach that most designers have into all of what we do and to set things up in a, in a, I think it's creating a mindset in, in which we can understand that the mitigating things that we want to do environmentally are actually really good things for us. And in my title of that eco-optimism, the, the eco has a double meaning in which I'm talking about ecological problems and economic problems as well. And what I go about in the blog, and there are other people talking about this as well, is looking at the design and social and other solutions we have that can tackle both the economic and environmental problems complementarily at the same time and, and end us up in a place better than we started. And that comes back to you know, the, the flourish versus sustain discussion we had a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of flourishing... There are some ingredients for our economy that we can't deny we absolutely need. Energy is one. Water is another. And a lot of people don't realize how water-intensive our energy system is. Most of the energy that we create and we generate in this country requires clean water, not contaminated, dirty, mucky water, but absolutely clean water in order to cool the power plants. And lately, one of the biggest headlines we've been seeing is the extreme drought conditions that that we're in in this country. And of course, that's going to impact everything from, you know, our food production to our energy production. And that's sort of a shocking story for the U.S., but there are places all over the world where drought is a way of life. I'd love for you to talk about some of the various methods embedded in sustainable design that address water usage, both from the consumption standpoint and from the wastewater treatment perspective, because I think this is going to be one of the biggest issues of the 21st century at, at all the competing interests for water and sustainable design um, and how it treats water, I think is critically important to understand. So give us some insight on that. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. You know, that there are people in areas of political study that talk about the next material that we'll be having conflicts or wars over. Right, right now it's over oil. Uh, that in the not-too-distant future it could easily be over water because of the lack of water, because of polluting of water, and because of, ha- because of having so many more people using mm-hmm. so much water. One thing we do know is that uh, Americans consume more water per capita than pretty much anyone else on the planet. 
And that tells us that, that you can exist and exist in a comfortable way using much less water than we do. Many, many people on the planet do it. Um, so what that tells us is, what it informs us is, is uh, what do we need to do to reduce that consumption? And some of it is our own personal practices. Some of it are the basic, I would call them incremental steps, like putting in water saver toilets and, mm-hmm. and faucets and that, that sort of thing. And that, that those should really be no-brainers. We have to do that. Um, then where I think it gets really more interesting is when we start looking at the flow of water in and through and out of buildings and thinking about you know, all the ways the water is used, what happens to the water during its course of usage in the building and where it goes afterward. And now almost all buildings are set in separate little organisms, let's call them, attached to the greater ecosystem, and they draw in clean water and put out dirty water. What we would really like to have, and what's a very exciting type of design, is this viewing buildings, instead of as these separate entities in the system, viewing them as almost their own system, their own ecosystem, in which they collect their own water, uh, perhaps through rainwater, local water sources, um, use the water, and then treat the water within the building or nearby the building so that the water can be reused again. And we're talking about, about different types of reuse of water, whether it's gray water, uh, which is water that is dirty but not with biological contaminants. and It might have some soap in it, something like that, mm-hmm. but it's not you know, toilet water. Um, and that can be cleaned fairly easily and reused for, say, irrigation or for flushing toilets. So we can get a dual pipe system where we have pure water in some areas and we have gray water, slightly dirty water used where it is usable. Mm -hmm. Then we can get even more advanced, and there are buildings that are doing this, um, in which the dirty water, the really soiled water, is going through a treatment system within the building or in adjacent areas of the building. And sometimes involves uh, vats in which plants and bacteria grow that clean the water in a natural way. And then the water sometimes is uh, pumped into a field adjacent to the building, building, a field that works like a wetland and does the, same, does the work the same way nature does it in cleaning the water. That's what nature does with our dirty water, is purify it by putting it through plants and, and rocks and, and uh, soil. Mm-hmm. And we can make those kinds of systems, and we can do that in such a way that the building does become a practically self-sufficient ecosystem where it's not a drain on the water table um, or the outflows. It's the same approach we want to take really with energy, where buildings uh, in many, many cases could become either self-sufficient or the equivalent of self-sufficient in terms of making a lot of the energy that it uses. Mm -hmm. And I actually, that's what I want to talk about as soon as we come back from this next commercial break, talking about some of the passive and active energy systems that you cover in the book. It's a fascinating topic. So don't go away, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but there's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you ever wanted to ask a direct question to a private investigator? If so, you'll want to listen for the Private Eye Nightline with private investigator John Siakio. John and his guest experts will answer your questions about infidelity, drug issues, custody, restraining orders, and more. Sometimes there are sensitive issues involving a family member or other loved one. We're here to help. The Private Eye Nightline is broadcast live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be tuning in, our guest today is David Bergman. He is the author of a brand new book called Sustainable Design, a Critical Guide. And I have to put a plug in here because it really is very user-friendly. You don't have to be an architect. You don't have to be a building developer. You can just be somebody who's interested in making your home, your workplace, or your kid's school more sustainable. And you can get a lot of great information from this book. If you're looking to find out where you can get more information about the book or some of the great ideas that David has, you can check out his website at www.ecooptimism.com. You know, right before we went to commercial break, David, we were talking about energy in our built environment and the energy that our our buildings use. And a lot of people are familiar with the the concept that sustainable design is about making buildings more energy efficient. And in your book, you describe two ways of achieving better energy efficiency. I hadn't heard it spoken of this way previously. You talk about passive and active design. And I'd love for you to talk to our listeners about the various forms of uh, passive and active design that can help a, bu- a building become more energy efficient. Sure. Um, and it, it is an important distinction between the two, although they can overlap as things do. In uh, you know, a lot of the attention in the press on sustainable design has gone on what we might call the sexier stuff, things like photovoltaic panels and wind turbines. Um, those are fairly complex systems, um, often you know involving mechanical stuff and electro- electronic stuff. And we put those into a category, the, the latter category of active design or active energy efficiency. Passive refers often to a lot of the really, when it comes down to it, really basic, simple concepts of design that people have known for ages and have known about them because they had to cope with varying climates without the ability to have active technologies, you know, like photovoltaics. And, um, 
it's the you know common sense things like having overhangs above southern facing windows um, and it explains or having windows with cross ventilation you know a building requires a lot less cooling a room requires a lot less cooling if it has good air movement in it so what we're looking at is tackling energy efficiency first with passive design techniques because they're often inexpensive they're the low hanging fruit uh, they're also the ones that we know a lot about because they've been done for so long. Things, things like using thermal mass on, on certain walls and floors to even out heating and cooling cycles through a day. Or things like, as I mentioned, uh, ventilation uh, systems, stack effect of windows, uh, overhangs. It's all common sense. It also explains how when, or why when we look at older buildings in different places in the world, they look different. You know, a, um, it explains the design of a New England salt box house and how that looks so very different from, let's say, a Charleston uh, porch house, one of the ones with the porches are lining all the sides. Um, right. Or how the design, I talk about the design of Persian wind catchers. That's a very hot, dry environment. And hundreds and hundreds of years ago, they learned a way to capture the wind and bring it down into the homes and cool, cool it using underground water. Uh, so those would be passive techniques. Um, shutters on Mediterranean windows. Very, very simple. Of course, you close the shutters in the middle of the day when it's hot so that the room doesn't heat up inside. Um, so the in passive energy efficient, efficiency, it's trying to tackle things in the simplest, perhaps very or most obvious, well-known ways. And it's largely not energy creation, but reducing the need for energy in the building in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, so that we have to, we don't have to make as much energy, and uh, that energy might be made through active techniques. Mm -hmm. And that's almost kind of like working with nature instead of against it. And oh, very uh, much. Yeah, and you know, there's a there's a new term. Well, it may not be new to you. To, it's new to me. Mm -hmm. Something that I hadn't heard of until fairly recently in the sustainable design world, and that's biomimicry. Mm. Can you? Talk a little bit about that. Sure. It's a fascinating topic. And you're right, it hasn't been talked about, at least not using that term, until you know, 10 years ago or so when actually there's a book called Biomimicry that got this going uh, when that book was printed. Biomimicry is really looking at how nature does things in order to figure out how we can do things better than we do right now. And it starts with the realization that nature is just incredibly efficient. I mean, mm -hmm. if you think just about waste and garbage and how much waste and garbage you know, we make in the, in the processes of our lives, whether it's building buildings or cooking a dinner, um, and there is a statistic that says that something like 90% of the materials we take out of the earth or that we grow are discarded as garbage within six months. Oh, that that's is sad. an incredibly horrific efficiency rate. We're, mm -hmm. we're just so far behind the idea of using our materials efficiently. Contrast that to the systems nature uses for all, for all the ecosystem, for all of life. One of the things I do in my classes sometimes is, is uh, turn to the students and say, name one thing that nature wastes, that nature throws away. Hmm. And I make them pause for about a while, pause on it for a while, and sometimes somebody comes up with something, and I say, well, well, no, that's not really waste because it goes into something else. 
you know, whether it's the waste from animals that becomes fertilizer for plants, uh, leaves that fall from trees that uh, become nutrient in soil. Uh, nature has no concept of waste. Every, you know, they're 100% efficiency. Now, think if we can learn how nature does some of these things. The, the classic example, and I love to talk about this, is flight. Uh, you know, birds fly really easily. Mm-hmm. We fly, but not nearly so easily. <laughs> and people have studied the way birds achieve this, you know, whether it's going back to the myth of Icarus or looking at da Vinci's drawings or the Wright brothers studying, um, I think it was seagulls, I forget what birds they studied, all trying to mimic what nature does. But we have to do, do it with tons of metal and electronics and powerful engines using fossil fuels. A bird just does it. Mm-hmm. If we can figure out something even near close to the efficiency of a bird. Think of how much better that arena of our energy and materials consumption would be. And there are other marvelous examples. Um, one that's frequently talked about is something called spider silk, which is what spiders make their webs out of. Uh-huh. It turns out that that silk is an incredibly strong and flexible material, much stronger than anything we make, stronger than steel and Kevlar. Um, and think about how nature how, no, I'm sorry, how we make those things. We have to dig it up out of the earth, transport it, you know, put it through blast furnaces and high sources of energy, things like that. Compare it to spider silk. The silk yeah. is made in the body of the spider, you know, at normal temperatures, not thousands of degrees in steel mills. Mm-hmm. And yet it is so superior a material to the ones we make. And I could go on with, with lots of other examples, and it, it's, it's tempting to do that. Um, but, you know, think, for example, if we could make our photovoltaic panels as efficient as a leaf. Because a leaf in a tree is basically a form of a photovoltaic panel. I but never thought about that, but you're right. tubes and the electronics and the pipes and the pumps mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. So well, so that, much we it's a great do. challenge, and it's an optimistic challenge for our designers to to study what's already going on around us in nature that's so incredibly efficient and, you know, and proven uh, besides, you know, making up a whole new process. You know, nature's been doing this for millions of years. A lot of time to figure it out. Exactly. You know, I noticed uh, in your bio that you've done a lot with lighting. And sometimes lighting options can be kind of confusing for our our general populace. Can you talk to us about lighting and and how we can achieve the best lighting options in our design? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, And I do talk about lighting a lot. Uh, I'll try to keep it briefer here. Um, You know, we've gone through sort of a wrenching change in the last 20 or so years, where for ages before that, since the well, ages, I guess this is an exaggeration, but since the invention of artificial lighting, we basically have relied on the incandescent bulb. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it provides a really nice kind of light, but it's, it, it's extraordinarily inefficient. It's something like 5% of the electricity that goes into an incandescent bulb emerges as light. The remaining 95% is waste heat. That's why the bulb is so hot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, it's like we were talking about with nature's efficiencies. We're only 5% efficient in making light with an incandescent bulb. Compact fluorescent bulbs um, upped that quite a bit. Uh, still nowhere near you know nature's 100% efficiency rates, but they use a lot less electricity than uh, incandescents. And by the way, I'd like, I'd like to call, I mean, often refer to incandescent bulbs as toasters because they basically work <laughs> exactly the same way the filament in your toaster works. 
just the proteins oh. are a little better at making heat. Um, <laughs> fluorescent bulbs are, are much more energy efficient. They do have some drawbacks, and I, I really loved switching to fluorescent bulbs 10, 15 years ago uh, when the better compact fluorescents started coming out. But there are drawbacks. You know, one of the big ones is they all contain mercury, which is a really nasty uh, uh, element. Yeah. And um, there are problems with the way we manufacture them. There are problems with the type of light they make, that it's not always as acceptable or as pretty as incandescent light. And now the good news is we have another generation or two or three of types of lighting coming down the road. And the one most, most commonly talked about are LEDs, light-emitting diodes. And because of the development of LEDs and other sources, I now talk about CFLs as an interim technology. We can use them for a while now while we wean ourselves off of incandescence and while LEDs uh, develop further. There are LEDs, by the way, that, that are completely good to use right now. They're still a little pricey, but the price is coming down. Uh, the price, if you, you need to look at that in terms of a long-term price because that LED bulb is going to last you many, many, many years and use a lot less electricity. So even though it might cost $30 now, you're going to make that money back um, over a fairly short period of time. I, uh, rather than going on about this so much, which I'd love to do, <laughs> um, one of the things I can direct people to is a website that I often contribute columns and answers to. It's a site called greenhomeguide.com. Um, where, by the way, you can find green architects. But one of the things I love about the site is I have an area called Ask a Pro. And anyone can write in a question of any area of green design. And various numbers of us look at the questions and figure out which ones we can answer best. And I've, be, I've become, I guess, the de facto lighting person on, <laughs> on greenhomeguide.com. So a lot, a lot more information you can find there. And give us the website one more time. I'm sorry? Give us the website uh, oh, I'm one sorry. more time. Green, it's greenhomeguide.com. Greenhomeguide.com. Well, that's that's a great uh, website. I have checked that out before, and I highly recommend it. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we've got much more with David Berg. And so, don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Tolvanta Energy, visit us today at www.tolvantaenergy.com. 
step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on voiceamericakids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for voiceamerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at voiceamericakids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to voiceamericakids.tv. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We're so pleased to have our guest, David Bergman, on today. Um, we're talking about sustainable design. And so often when we breach, uh, you know, or, or broach this topic, I should say, we talk about sustainable design in terms of mitigating climate change and uh, the health of future generations because we've become more energy efficient in our, in our built environment. But the fact is sustainable design can help us a great deal right here, right now. There's something called sick building syndrome, and it's uh, it's a very real uh, situation. It's been happening in uh, schools and in workplaces, and it's something that sustainable design definitely takes into account. And David, I'd love for you to talk about what it is and how sustainable design uh, can help alleviate sick building syndrome. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think I would broaden the sick building syndrome topic out a little bit further to talk about it, about it in terms of indoor air or indoor environmental quality, and sick building mm-hmm. syndrome is really when we get to the worst of indoor air quality. Now, the reason we have this kind of a situation in some buildings, it's a result of, of the conjunction of the three parts of our modern life. One of them, when I learned this, I was astounded. Statistically, the average American spends 90% of his or her life indoors. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's hard to imagine that, but if you, most of us, if you sit back and think about your time in your home, your office, perhaps your car, uh, yeah, that, it adds up to most of our lives. Now, in the last 40, 50 years or so, a lot of attention has focused on cleaning up air pollution, which is really outdoor air quality. Not as much has foc- not, as, not as much attention is focused on indoor air quality. What has happened, maybe the second component of this, is that in pursuing energy efficiency, we've made our buildings a lot tighter, meaning a lot less air gets through, you know, in or out through walls and windows and doors and roofs, uh, which is great for energy efficiency. But it means that the air that is inside a building tends to stay inside and not get diluted as much with perhaps cleaner outdoor air. And furthermore, and this is the third part of it, the stuff that we have inside our buildings, the things we make buildings out of, the furnishings we bring in, the electronics we bring in, um, are increasingly made of synthetic chemicals, many of which either have not been tested at all or have been shown to be dangerous uh, to life, to humans. So we have a situation in which we're spending most of our lives indoors, uh, we're not getting as much outdoor air coming in, and the air that emerges from inside the house is 
much more toxic than we would like it to be. So the eco-designers, the uh, green architect's role is to make sure we have enough air circulation in the building, bringing in outside air or expelling indoor air. And that's a tricky area because you need to do it without uh, combating uh, energy efficiency. But moreover, a great way to do it is to simply simply minimize the sources of those indoor air contaminants. And architects have a big role in that by specifying certain types of materials and certain types of wall construction or uh, insulation. It goes beyond that, though, um, into usage of our buildings as well. And I mentioned electronics. There's a lot of off-gassing from electronics. Um, even the cleansers that we use in you know, our home or office, those can sometimes be nasty chemicals if you're not using more natural types. Mm-hmm. And because of the air quality, it, those, those chemicals stay with us when we're inside. We need Especially to minimize if we can't chemicals. open the windows and ventilate. You know, I mean, in, in some, some office spaces, you, you can't. Yeah, you either can't or if you do open the window, it's, you know, you're losing your air conditioning or your heating, so you're ruining <laughs> right. the uh, uh, energy efficiency. Right. You know, I'd love to spend just a moment talking about some of the uh, materials that can be used in sustainable design, mm-hmm. uh, reclaimed, recycled, and renewable materials. Give us just a, a brief overview of some of the pros and cons of incorporating these various types of materials into a structure. Okay. Um, well, most of us in, in, in this design world like to say that the greenest material you can use is something that already exists something that doesn't have to be grown or fabricated. And that brings us into the realm of reclaimed or reused or salvaged materials, you know, whether it is using hardware from old doors, might be beautiful crystal, things like that, or, or old wood planking. Um, so one of the best things to do is get this, use the stuff that's already sitting around, perhaps having been torn out of another building, and we get a dual saving there. We keep it from going into a landfill, and we don't have to produce new materials instead of these reclaimed or reused materials. Mm -hmm. Then we can talk about um, recycling as as the next step, perhaps, in in our hierarchy of materials we want to use. And it gets a a little bit tricky because we need to differentiate between two fundamental types of materials. One are what's called biological nutrients, meaning they are materials that when we're finished with them, they can go back into the earth. Uh, to become another biological process to make more materials. But then there are a whole lot, an increasing number of materials that really can't go safely back into the earth because they don't uh, decompose or they're toxic. And with all of those materials, technical nutrients we call them as opposed to the biological, those need to be kept in a closed loop of usage so that they're never thrown out. When we take a technical nutrient out of a building or a car or whatever, it needs to be going into a reuse cycle. Um, Otherwise, again, what are we going to do with those materials? We'll throw them out and they'll become, you know, the garbage patch in the Pacific Gyre or a landfill Mm -hmm. that doesn't decompose and at the same time have to make more. The third category that we look at materials is renewable resources, and there's actually a subcategory within that that we call rapidly renewable resources. And that's the reason, for instance, we've had a lot of discussion about uh, bamboo, mm-hmm. because bamboo grows so incredibly fast. You know, it takes just a few years to grow a bamboo crop. Uh, mm-hmm. That falls into the category of a rapidly renewable material. Uh, we have you know, other materials that are 
may be as fast in renewing or a lot slower. We can look at trees that have different uh, lifespans. You know, an, an old tree that we might make lumber out of takes a lot longer to grow than the bamboo that we might make a form of lumber out of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the earth makes all of these materials. So in a sense, they're all renewable. In, in a really strict sense, you could even say that fossil fuels are renewable because the earth makes more of them. But the earth just makes them so slowly compared to how fast we're using them that we don't even consider, consider that in the category of renewable, let mm-hmm. alone rap- rapidly renewable. You know, in the minute that we have left before we have to tie up, I I would really like for you to give us what you think the future of sustainable design is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Happy to. Um, First of all, the future of sustainable design in general, I think, is it won't be a field of study. We'll be on the road to or at the point of success when sustainable design is no longer separated from the rest of the design, when it's just integrated into everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has bearing on how it's taught, how it's incorporated in practice, but also on what it looks like. And that's been an interesting question over the bunch of years that sustainable design has been around. The early sustainable buildings were, you know, they might have been made of, of used rubber tires and burlap and things that a lot of people do like as their kinds of material, the place to live in, but a lot more people don't like. Right. And what we're seeing now is an evolution in design and sustainable design in which the sustainably designed building is less obviously looking sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's well, this is very exciting. And we want everything to be. Yep, very exciting, um, and I'm hoping that that happens very soon, that sustainable design just becomes the norm. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks to all of our listeners. We'll be back same time, same place next week with Go Green Radio. So until then, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.